0: I've never felt healthier, more energy, more happy, you know, mentally, physically, like not worrying about, you know, diet or, you know, just total weight maintenance without even trying. And I think that leading through this example and, you know, and not preaching it, but having people notice, in their own time is almost more powerful. And you know, a lot of times I'll see when I go out to eat, people will be so worried. What are you gonna eat at the restaurant? And they're like, they're so worried about it. And I'm like, it's fine, you know? And then I ordered this, you know, very simple, whether it's pasta or just a rice with some salad, you know, a salad with a side of rice or whatever it is. And they see themselves how easy it can be, how you can still live this very normal, quote unquote, Western life. And, you know, live to your full happiness and do everything you want, right, but do it in a different way. And I think leading through that example and, you know, showing how vibrant and healthy and happy you can be through this plant-based lifestyle um, is really powerful.
1: Welcome to the Eat Green, Make Green podcast. I'm your host, Pat McCauley. This podcast is all about celebrating the lives of those who have adopted a plant-based or vegan lifestyle and how it has positively impacted their health, relationships, outlook on life, and so much more. For more episodes and information about the benefits of living a plant-based or vegan lifestyle, visit eatgreenmakegreen.com. This week's episode of the Eat Green, Make Green podcast is sponsored by Darwin Clothing. Darwin makes men's dress shirts and Henleys, and I'm telling you, when I bought my first Darwin dress shirt, I will not buy any other type of dress shirt. The fit makes me look good, makes me feel good. I can wear it tucked in. It doesn't come untucked. Um, I can wear it untucked. I just love everything about it. They are handmade in Boston's South End with the best high-quality fabrics. Um, The shirts literally make six to seven hours to make per shirt. I mean, it's an incredible product. If you care about how you look, which I do, uh, I want to look and feel my best at all times, then you need to check out Darwin Clothing. You can literally go to the website darwinclothing.us and shoot Peter, the owner, a text, and he will take care of you. I mean, there is no other buying experience That comes close to that. Um, They are unbelievably made shirts, and I really recommend that if you wear a suit every day or you are more of a Henley guy, that you go to DarwinClothing.us and shoot Peter a message. At the very least, he'll give you more information. Amazing local brand. In this week's episode, I sit down with the marvelous Carly Comins. Carly was a classmate of mine back in high school. At the time, we didn't really know each other, but in recent months, I've been fortunate enough to reconnect as we both share similar views on health and specifically veganism. Carly has spent the past five years or so traveling the world doing various types of research on AIDS in developing countries. She's been everywhere from Africa to Bangladesh to Haiti and other parts of the Caribbean and everywhere in between. I was so excited to wring her brain on what she's seen in developing countries in regard to diet and how it's impacting the health of people in non-Westernized countries. We talk about what sparked her desire to travel, how she got into AIDS research, what it's like traveling alone as a woman, why she's chosen to live plant-based, and how we as Americans can set the example for the developing world in terms of what it means to be healthy. And in doing so, hopefully save them from also becoming a nation plagued with obesity, heart disease, cancers, and so much more. There's so much more we could have talked about in this conversation, so I'm going to have to have Carly back for a second episode in the future. Carly is a true inspiration. She literally is always smiling. She's always happy. And you can't not have fun when you're around her. Her energy is infectious, and I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So, without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce the traveling vegan extraordinaire, my friend, Carly Comins. Oh, I'm ready. All right. I <laughs> yeah, love it. All right. So, we were, we were joking before Carly got here mm. that I shot you a text. Or a message, I should say. Mm. Um, And I wasn't sure if you were going to be in this hemisphere. Oh, yes. Um, And I I saw you on Instagram that you were going to be home, and I knew I needed to grab you before you were somewhere in a third world country or something. Well, I'm glad you (laughs) did.
0: (laughs) So thanks for coming. Thank you. Thanks for coming. I'm happy to be here.
1: So I know a little bit about you. We went to high school together. Yes. But most people listening probably don't. So, could you tell us a little bit about where you grew up, Okay, kind of what life was like growing up, what mom and dad did, et cetera, et cetera?
0: Okay. So, I grew up, I was born in, in, in Newton, and we were there for a bit. My sister was born, who's five years younger than me, was born in Portland, Maine, so we lived there. When she was born, moved back to Hingham. My mom's from Hingham. Mm-hmm. So my mom grew up in Hingham, two doors down from the high school. And she always wanted to... Wait, where,
1: sorry to interrupt you, where two doors down from the Like,
0: okay, the old entrance. Do you know where my house is?
1: No. Okay,
0: so... So you live, I think,
1: no, I don't know. Okay, so old entrance. Yeah, the
0: old entrance, going towards that four-way stop. Yep. Like, literally two doors down. A white,
1: tall house with a porch in the front. That's so, that is, so you know the brown house with the stone wall around it. Which is also right there. Which is also right there. On the corner? No, I don't know. Not the, <laughs> I'm pretty <laughs> sure my family's house is like directly next, to, next door. Probably. Which is, which is funny. Wow, okay, I did not know that. Yeah, so she was born <laughs> okay. there, Yeah.
0: or grew up there, um, and always wanted to come back and raise her kids in Hingham. So we were in Portland, and her mother was sick, who was still living at that house. So we came back, and I lived in that house for a bit, and then we moved. We first moved right down the street on Cottage Street. So uh, so that was the first house in Hingham, and then moved downtown, where I, I really grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom worked worked in in that back then worked with Dunkin' Donuts. So I remember growing up with always. Uh, coffee beans smell in the car, and you know, mm-hmm. um, my dad worked in works in uh, philanthropy and fundraising, and back then was working with Special Olympics. Um, so growing up in Hingham was growing up in Hingham. I mean, it was it was good. I appreciate it much more now, I think, than I did. Um, but it was good. I, but it was you know it's for people who don't know, it's like a small bubble, white affluent bubble, right? Mm -hmm. And I always wanted, I was always interested in like the other. And um, so in um, 2006, right, when we were in high school, um, sophomore year somewhere, I think, uh, I got my first chance to go to Africa. So that's really, for me, that's what sort of sparked me on this like global HIV path was which, what I do now um, so yeah I went to Tanzania with uh, two other Hingham with Ricky Tantillo Chris yeah. Chris Johnson so we went we um, we went to Tanzania on like a two-week mission trip and for me that was sort of the the spark of, of abroad and you know really wanting to get back to Africa and work within Africa and that sort of I guess has directed course of my life
1: yeah and what, what was the mission trip what was the goal of the mission trip it
0: was it was a bit of we bought we brought over a lot of medical supplies we had fundraised and we you know it was a little bit of everything I mean we worked at the hospital we painted and we like helped to like paint and clean and Um, I remember holding babies and we also, you know, visited an orphanage and we helped build a house. And it was a little bit of everything. We also did like at the end, like a two day safari drive through. So, I mean, it was a very compact trip, but you know, fundraising, we we spent um, some of the money that we fundraising putting these two twins, boys, to school for the year. So we met them and in their community. And it was, you know, it was a real eye opener for me. It was like my first, I mean, I'd been to Argentina, my cousins are Argentinian, but it was my first time in the developing world abroad, um, within the continent of Africa, which I was so interested in. Um, I think because it was so different than what we grew up with and what Mm -hmm. we knew. Sure. So.
1: And was that the only kind of developing country trip you took in high school?
0: Yes, I were. I did do. Um, I was like big in the in the church. We did some like some summer mission trips, a work camp where we went to West Virginia one summer, and I built you know a wheelchair ramp for this really some really a really poor resident. Um, And then we went to an Indian reservation in Canada one year. And then I thought, I don't remember where we went the third year. But yeah, so I was always like, I think maybe this was my dad's influence. And Mm -hmm. I mean, well, both of my parents, but, um, but I was always, you know, I always had that drive and I was always reaching out towards, you know, learning about other people and the way they live and how I could could help, I guess, to whatever extent I could. Cool, cool.
1: So how do we end up at Penn State? Um,
0: I didn't want to go anywhere to school in Massachusetts. Uh-huh. I wanted to get away again. So <laughs> I... Um,
1: <clears throat> Definitely a trend here. We're seeing a yes, trend. Yes, <laughs> yes.
0: And so I applied to all the big schools I could find. Um, out of state or, you know, big... And I, Penn State had... I didn't actually want to go to Pennsylvania at all. I was like, why would I want to be in Pennsylvania of all states? No, but now I love Pennsylvania. So, uh, <laughs> um, But yeah, and then they had a really good program. I wasn't sure at that age if I wanted to go to be a doctor and work in the medical field or if I wanted to become a public health professional and work in the community. So I was really unsure then. Um, of which direction I wanted to take. So this program, um, I got my bachelor's in science and biobehavioral health, was like a very all-encompassing program that sort of allowed me to get the credits for both. So then, towards the end, or you know, maybe two years into into schooling into university, I could decide which direction I wanted to take.
1: Four years at Penn State. Yeah. Yes. And then. What happens after school? I know you have like a a cool... So first of all, you meet your fiancé in school, correct?
0: Yes, ex-fiancé, but yes, great man. No problem. (laughs) Just want to clear that. No. Uh, (laughs) But yes, so we met freshman year of college. Uh And in college, I also got... uh, In university, I also got a a global health minor. uh, And part of that was... Uh, requirement was a seven-week field placement abroad so I also always knew I wanted to study abroad again my my big target was Africa Mm -hmm. within Africa somewhere so we ended up going studying abroad in Cape Town South Africa and so studied for a semester at the University of Cape Town and while I was there I completed my global health minor so I ended up being in South Africa for a total of eight months Um, this was in 2011 and I worked at the University of Western Cape with this organization Healthwise, which was an HIV youth program targeted at you know, reducing risk and increasing education for uh, the youth in the, in the Western Cape. So, so yeah, so that was a really great experience. Loved, again, loved South Africa, loved Cape Town. Um, and then when I graduated Penn State, we, I took a job with, I came back to Boston, uh, mm. took a job with Harvard Medical School, Department of Population Medicine, as a research assistant. And I mean, it was a great, I mean, Harvard, the school, this, this program uh, was, you know, a great Opportunity and a great learning experience. We did, but it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. It was we were what we were doing is we were working on a. Basically, the FDA said that pharmaceutical companies needed to monitor new medical products, new drugs, new vaccines once they've reached the market. So there's a pretty rigorous, um, rigorous system, or let's say trials or you know research that they do for new drugs like a new heart disease or blood pressure or whatever it may be drug before it reaches the market so the fda needs to approve that it's safe mm-hmm. but during these clinical trials i mean without getting too detailed it's very like it's in a very controlled setting you know so they're trying to keep all other variables the same and just measure the effect of this drug mm-hmm. so then there was nothing When to date there was nothing to monitor drugs once they've reached the market, and once people are using it on a long term basis, once people have different races and ages and you know, you know, environmental impacts, and there's nothing to sort of measure that in real time. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And so, this is so the FDA managed mandated that this mini Sentinel, the Sentinel initiative was to be established. So we were using claims-based data, so we were using health insurance claims data to look back in almost real time the, the impact of these drugs based on, you know, people entering the hospital or heart attacks and then looking back and seeing the drugs that they're taking and, you know, doing large-scale studies. So was, I think it's very important, um, important research, um, especially with all, of the pharmaceutical drugs that are administered today, and we all know that impact. I mean, uh-huh. I very much, I'm against that now. But uh-huh. I was, I was, uh, I I wasn't really on board then either. I was, you know, I, I was sitting at a cubicle, and I was just dreaming about being abroad, being in Africa, doing this HIV research, which I really am passionate about, and sort of felt like I needed to do. Right. So, quit the job, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, and uh, my my fiance then quit also his job, and
1: we bought a
0: one-way ticket to Mauritius.
1: Okay, so explain to us where that is in the world.
0: So, Mauritius is a small country, part of Africa, considered part of sub-Saharan Africa, um, basically, if you look at a map, think of a map of Africa. You have Madagascar as is that island off the eastern coast, and then Mauritius is just like a small dot in the middle of the Indian Ocean <laughs> off of Madagascar. So it's about one million population, 1.2 million. It takes an hour to drive in any direction. It's a, was a former volcanic
1: island. Um, so how did you de- how did you decide on this? So did you just
0: well there was a little bit of designed. google searching yeah. best places to live in africa. <laughs> <laughs> True story. But um no, it was actually like a great I mean he's in he was in he's in finance. So we needed to find a place that wasn't like, you know, rural middle of nowhere africa, somewhere that we could find both have both find work. So Mauritius is like let's say sort of the Cayman Islands Of Africa in terms of the fact that it's a big tax haven so a lot of the foreign investment into Africa gets channeled through Mauritius so that because it's they have really low tax Um, so for finance it's a great hub Um, and for me for HIV they have although it's a small population the prevalence of HIV among key populations so I mean in general in the world today with uh, exception to some countries like South Africa that have more of a generalized epidemic. Most of the epidemics in in HIV around the world are considered concentrated, which means they are centered around these key populations: sex workers, female sex workers, uh, men who have sex with men, gay men, um, injecting drug users, and transgendered individuals. So, mm. in Mauritius, they have a lot. They have about Estimated around 10,000 injecting drug users, and the prevalence of HIV is like over 50%, and which is super high. And yeah. then for female sex workers, the prevalence is around 22.2%, I believe. Um, so there so it was sort of a good starting point i mean we did, we went with no job we went with no housing we didn't really have any contacts we just had a 3 month tourist visa uh-huh. and said let's try to see if we can make it happen and we went over and we did i mean i got i was contracted by the the national aid secretariat and worked with them on two big national studies and he got a job with kpmg and so Yeah, so that's sort of how the first, my first like real, a big step I think abroad and that's sort of what, um, yeah, what sort of was the the big changing changing factor. Yeah,
1: so you're there a year, two years?
0: Yeah, I was there a year, yeah, we had a beautiful property by the beach. Um, <laughs> lots of fruit trees in our yard. We had a couple of banana trees and a couple of coconut trees, and I mean, it was it was. It's a tropical country, so it's really fresh fruits and vegetables and delicious and amazing. And then I decided, well, let me just go to the opposite end of the spectrum and go to Bangladesh Mm -hmm. (laughs) and live in a, in the city of Dhaka, which has over 16 million people just in the city. Um, 200 million in the country. Just a little
1: bit of traffic there. Oh my
0: gosh. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, I went to Bangladesh to get my master's in public health. Okay. So I was from. so we were in Mauritius for a year. Yeah. So I studied at the James P. Grant School of Public Health, part of Brock University. Uh, I had actually heard about this program when I was working at Harvard from a woman, uh, an investigator who has done a bunch of research in the Asian context. So it's a field-based program um, geared towards the developing world, working in the developing world. Um, there were 60 students. I was the only one from a developed country, mm-hmm. uh, the only white person, female, unmarried. You know, it was, it was quite. You know, <laughs> I, was, I was loud and outspoken. So I mean, it was a great, it was a great experience. Uh, hands down, unparalleled. I mean, academic and um, field-based experience. They bring in professors from. They have links with all the big universities, so they bring in professors from Harvard and from. John Hopkins and from London School and, and they, but it's all practical. I mean, we would learn something in the classroom in the morning and then go to the slum right down the street and, you know, do many studies and investigations and, you know, discussions and it was really, really hands on. So that's why I chose to go there.
1: So you're a, you're on your own in Bangladesh, yeah. right? Yeah. You're, you know, a white Westerner. Yes. In Bangladesh. Yes. I mean, there had to be some sort of month or two window of oh. adjustment where you were just like, you must have been questioning what you were doing to an extent. Yeah,
0: yeah. I had, um, it was more than a month. It was about <laughs> four months um, that I like really struggled. Um, I was living in a dorm uh, with all Bangladeshis and other foreigners. but. For the first four months, I mean, there was some Westerners that came from Columbia University around that four-month mark, but until then, it was just me. I mean, it's a very, for those who don't know, Bangladesh is a very conservative Muslim country. Um, And so, I mean, just not only adjusting to... All the cultural aspects, you know, trying, you know, dressing appropriately.
1: Right. And you have that, you're, you wear the headscarf and yeah, everything, Yeah, the right?
0: hijab. And I mean, it's not mandatory, but it's something that made me feel more comfortable. And I think gained more, res- helped me to gain more respect when I was in the field and just mm-hmm. navigating alone through the streets and stuff like that. Um, so yeah so dress but I mean even just to go to like dinner at the dorm you know to dress appropriately and you know I had luckily I had my own um, I didn't have to share a room so I had my own little four walls where I could do my yoga and you know wear shorts and (laughs) chill out in my own space Right. Um, but yeah but it, it was good I mean I I now really love Bangladesh, I have, I just took a bit and I, you know, I cracked into this other sort of expat culture and, um, you know, developed really lasting friendships and I have, you know, ongoing research there. But it was definitely the biggest cultural adjustment that, I, that I've made, I think, to date. Mm-hmm. Or most difficult for me.
1: Okay, so where else have we traveled since? So you still do some work? Yeah, so in I Bangladesh. have a
0: study um, there looking at a, a infant feeding practices among urban slum mothers um, and infants under six months. So that's ongoing. We've just finished the research. We're working on the manuscript now. Um, since then, so since then, yeah, everybody
1: get out their notebooks. So. <laughs> for <laughs> supp- maps to, to check out these places. I've
0: um, 11 countries in the past year or so, since about Jan- January to the 2016. So I've um, so been working... Should I give the list? I've yeah, been, <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, we want I've the list. I've been <laughs> in Haiti. Probably most of my time in-country has been spent in Haiti. Um, also Barbados, Bahamas, Trinidad, Suriname um and then niger ivory coast cote d'ivoire um turkey and kosovo yeah so that's nine countries and then yeah and then bangladesh and and still a bit working with mauritius so mm-hmm.
1: so all of these places so y- you say those names in they are, most of them are third, kind of third most world Most of
0: them. I mean, the Caribbean, developing. yeah, the, the Caribbean, I think, is a bit more, exactly. um, yeah, so the Caribbean working on a, um, a big USAID-funded project called Linkages, um, uh, which is in 26 countries, but the Caribbean, again, has a really concentrated HIV epidemic, uh, mainly around the sex workers and the gay, or injecting, I mean, the men who have sex with men, so... Although, you know, some of them may be more developing countries or developed countries, we're still working
1: among these very um, key populations that are affected by HIV. Gotcha. So, Mm -hmm. again, you're traveling as a woman to these developed countries. Like, tell us what that's like. Are there any times you're not feeling safe? Are there any times that you're, you know, holy crap, (laughs) what's going on? Well,
0: I think... So I I travel a lot by myself, so I go as, I work for, in the past year I've worked with the University of Manitoba, a Canadian university based out of Winnipeg, as part of this like global HIV program team. So we have a lot of our teams in Kenya and Nigeria and India and obviously Canada, but I'm in the U.S. So that's sort of why I've been working more geographically within the Eastern Caribbean Uh, Caribbean, South America, and I do I travel representing the university. So I go in and I work with the local programs in country. So it is difficult sometimes to go as a woman. I mean, I I have and independently. I mean, I think I've had a very good positive experience. I don't haven't really run into too many. Situations, thank goodness. Um, And I'm grateful for that. But I think it can be, it's a lot. And then sometimes, you know, you're just wanting to have somebody to talk to and have that Mm -hmm. sort of camaraderie at night. And you can't really, as a woman, go to the bar and sit and try to make friends. I mean, it doesn't quite work that way. (laughs) It's a bit more difficult than, say, if you're a man. Um, So, and again, there's country. It's just not always as safe. So, I mean, in Bangladesh, we had to be really careful about travel. Haiti, again, has a big. You know, they had a bit violence, and they've had a a, a bit of turmoil politically over the um, the past years. So, again, movement around is it, it can be difficult. So, for me, I have I usually have some local friends that you know that I befriend and that usually is sort of my link toward, you know, to having some sort of life outside of the office hours when I'm in country.
1: Gotcha. So where does plant-based veganism, where does this all creep in?
0: So I was vegetarian starting in high, starting in middle school for about six years, Um, but I didn't really get it. I was doing it, I think, For sort of the wrong reasons, I was, you know, was something different, and I, um, you know, I've always done it. I think for the animals, but I didn't quite get the bigger picture then, and Mm -hmm. I definitely wasn't educated enough on how to eat properly. And I think there's a big difference, clearly, obviously, between vegetarianism and veganism. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, eating mac and cheese and Reese's peanut butter cups and saying that I'm getting my protein and, you know, it was all misconception. And I was running a lot. I, you know, I'm big into running. So the doctor was like, you know, you're not, you're not, you don't got this quite on point. (laughs) So I stopped uh, for a while. But it was in Mauritius that I really um, started reading a lot more about it, Um, you know, watching the the, you know, the big Cornerstone documentaries and, and reading a lot of Colin D. Campbell's books and um, a couple of the other ones. And I sort of started to understand it a bit more and really, you know, I also was surrounded in a place in Mauritius, you know, a beautiful tropical climate that I could um, have, a like, a very abundant source of fruits and vegetables, fresh fruits and vegetables mm-hmm. on a very year-round basis um it was probably so it was like i was working towards it in boston and and in mauritius i would say when i came to bangladesh and you know they offered rice three meals a day and the diet was very because i was living in this dorm the diet was very minimal i mean not minimal it was just very select straight bangladeshi food It was there that I was like, okay, well, I don't really have access to cheese, which in the beginning, you know, it was like, that was most difficult for me. So I said, okay, let's just go vegan. And it was then when I had this four months of difficult transition time, and I really had this headspace, and I was alone in a new country that I really started to disentangle what I believe in. And really, you know, I watched Cowspiracy, and I really started to connect the dots on, you know, how eating is affecting my health, both physically and mentally, and how it's in turn affecting everything else. And for me, it was, you know, once the connections were made solidly between, you know, our environment, climate change, obviously animals, the whole industry sector, pharmaceuticals, research, all these things also that I've sort of, spun around um in terms of what i believe but then really understanding the details behind it it was just i mean it was very obvious and i became you know so it's been almost almost three years now i think that Mm -hmm. i've been pretty strict vegan um i say pretty strict because you know sometimes when i'm abroad i get invited to a dinner and you know they'll be it won't be perfect but i you know in many cultural settings you cannot be so rude right and they don't really get so but i do find that um that it's actually easier to be vegan it was so easy in bangladesh i mean their staples are rice and dal
1: yeah so i want i want to talk, touch on this okay because a lot of people i talk to you yeah. say oh it's impossible to do while you're traveling or it's you know, or people just totally let their guard down when they're traveling and right. just kind of eat whatever. So, tell us your experience traveling, and is is it difficult to eat while baseball travel? Well, I think
0: it's like a big misconception. I yeah. mean, I think it's sort of one of the like classic excuses. Maybe I don't know, not to call it excuse, but I think m- misconception. I think that. I mean, my travel has been quite different than going to France and all these beautifully. Um, developed European countries that you know thrive on their dishes with cheese and you know butter and mm-hmm. you know I'm not I'm not really traveling through there but in most developing countries their staple is a starch mm-hmm. I mean whether it be rice or potatoes. in many African countries potatoes or yams you know or cassava what I, I mean it's it's all starches it's all um, and i mean that's i would say 90% of my diet so 80 to 90% of my diet is starch so i think in that sense it's really easy i think again it's it's overcoming this perception that you know you need certain things to to really be healthy or you know all this protein and as you're talking earlier you know all this misconception surrounding protein and how much protein you need and i think I I mean I thrived on eating rice three ma- meals a day. Um, dal they make some mean veggies. Um, so for me it was it was really easy and I think the most difficulty I have is when I go with expat friends to a more expat centric restaurant or you know higher-end, you know, restaurant where they're really trying to, like, do it up with the cheeses and the, um, the animal, all the animal-based products, that those are the places that I'm struggling more versus, or when I come back to the States, than when I'm abroad just eating local food. And I've, I mean, I, everybody knows almost Bangladesh is synonymous with cholera and, like, diarrhea and, you know, sickness. I never once was sick right there from eating their local food like mm-hmm. i think that that is a testament to the fact that you know a lot of our food poisoning and a lot of this you know i of course i didn't drink the water but i think i was never i never had food poisoning when i was there and i mean i i ate all local food so i think that you know it's a real testament to you know the impact of animal based protein in sickness as well
1: so That's a perfect segue. Mm. So you are connecting the dots. You're traveling. You're kind of the the vegan kind of uh, Mm. puzzles coming together. Yeah, exactly. How has it... What have you seen in uh, your work Mm. regarding how food impacts um, not only AIDS, but other diseases in developing countries?
0: So I think that...
1: I don't wanna get you fired.
0: No, (laughs) I'm gonna get fired up, that's what I'm gonna get. Um, I think that, uh, so speaking generally, I think uh, anecdotally there's a lot of, I mean there's not some quote unquote very scientific research, but anecdotally there's a lot of stories of people who've had HIV. So AIDS is just the progression of HIV, right? So it's just when you're, HIV is a virus that affects your immune system, and when your white blood cells fall between below a certain level, which means you, you can't fight your infection, just general pneumonia or common infections, uh, when they fall below this little certain level, you are classified as having AIDS. So I've seen, there's been a lot of stories about people who have AIDS who've gone to a strictly um, raw, vegan, uh, plant-based diet that have, Shown incredible, incredible results. Um, there was a doctor who died earlier. I'm uh, Sabide. I forget his name, who also really preached the um, the benefits of vegan veganism, plant based diet on
1: HIV. Are we I've, talking cure or are we talking kind of just so? Not okay. So this is another
0: argument. Me. There is, it's a virus that lives within your body when you go so okay so now the big thing is to get if you're positive and you're taking your drugs regularly oh this is like i'm talking the industry this is the industry speaking if you take your drugs regularly um you will reach what they call viral suppression which means you are it's sort of what they call prevention through treatment So you're taking your drugs, your virus in your body is so suppressed that it becomes undetectable. So technically they say you're always going to have HIV. Once you get the virus, it's something that you'll have for life. But when you reach this undetectable range, the risk of transmission, even through unprotected sex, is like less than Mm 0.1%. I mean less than 1%. So or 2%, it's really minimal. So this is like, this is sort of where globally they're trying to, you know, to get everybody identified who's positive, to link them to care, to get those who are on care, to adhere to their care so that they reach this viral suppression.
1: And how long does that take?
0: I mean, it, it, it depends on the person. It depends a lot on your diet. So you cannot be virally suppressed If you're, I mean, it's really hard. So another big issue is that HIV drugs, these super intense drugs, need to be taken with food. They need to be taken with a well-rounded diet. So for a lot of um, people who are living in disadvantaged situations, it's really hard to get their drugs and to eat a well, you know, take with food constantly when, you know, food scarcity um, is an issue and when money is an issue to buy the food and then when you also have you know industries or you know the general nutrition status quo saying that you need to eat you need to get your protein from this and you know a lot of families I found in Bangladesh mothers are told that they you know they need to obviously malnutrition is a big thing in Bangladesh and um and especially in pregnancy, you know, they're really advocating that mothers eat more and they're eating, you know, strong diets, but they really push these animal-based sources. And I think that definitely comes from the West in our standard American diet that
1: people think is so supreme um, right. when we, in the developed world. When we think somebody's malnourished, they need more protein. And that means more meat and dairy. Yeah.
0: And then you see, then you find mothers that are like, I know I need to eat more, but I can't afford eggs. So they're... They're selling their vegetables in their garden so that they can buy some eggs, you know. And in my opinion, that's, you know, I think like I've seen in these countries that they don't have money to buy food, but then there's trees dripping with jackfruit and, you know, there's grasses that you can eat around and plants that are around, but they don't even see that as really like a source of food and nutrients
1: Right, they're, they're striving for what is the norm in the West as right. a, a diet full of protein that's going to make you grow up strong and all this.
0: And we know, like, and I'm definitely tailoring off of HIV, but I, I think it's all interrelated as we talk about these, you know, non-communicable diseases. So the diabetes, the heart disease, the, the cancers, all these things, like, so you have HIV, which is a communicable disease, which long-term... Adherence, or you know, getting to that viral suppression depends on diet. So that's one thing. But then you have now the super rise of communicable diseases, which we're seeing in the U.S., um, but we're also seeing and that are increasing at a much faster rate in developing countries. And I think this is going to be the issue of like the big 21st century, of you know, our time and into the future, because these countries don't have the infrastructure or the money or the, to care for these individuals long term who have these diseases and it's all based on diet i mean mm-hmm. we know that all of these di- all of these communicable diseases can be cured if not, can be reversed if not cured through you know a plant-based diet mm-hmm. but they're not there yet with this whole plant-based. They, they've been doing it. They've been eating plant-based for so long. But now as, as the economic wealth of everyone is, is rising and people have more purchasing power, they're spending their money on what they think equals prosperity and equals success. And that's meat and animal-based products and, you know, super dense protein-based foods.
1: So as they slowly progress as a country and become more westernized, they're having this epidemic now of heart disease, cancer, all these western diseases, correct? Yeah,
0: Yeah. and it's huge. I mean, India is like, what, one-fifth of the population globally, and, I mean, they have the most diabetes of any country. I mean, it's millions and millions, like billions of people that have and I should have got my facts written out before I, you know I'm speaking, but i it's it's mass. I mean, the impact of diabetes is massive in the in India and in these countries. And in Africa, I mean, obesity is becoming a huge problem. Diabetes is becoming a huge problem. Um, and it's really linked to food. And there's been for so long, these countries were really malnourished. They were starving, and there was this Western push and from westernized, medicine and doctors and you know even public health professionals that are telling them you know to be healthy you need to eat more protein which is when I look at it it's like you know you just need to be eating more calories right you just need to be eating more quantity of food Mm -hmm. and more diversity but you have the food you know you you've got it right you don't need like you know and I was getting really you know, really pushing back in my in my nutrition course in in Bangladesh, really trying to out. You know, and every time I'd raise my hand, everyone would roll their eyes and be like, <laughs> "Come on again!" And I'm like, you know. And I think for babies that are dying of starvation, okay, there is something to say about these really dense, small, you know, packages of food that's going to increase their weight rapidly. But I mean, this isn't what we need to be preaching on a mass scale, especially in these countries where. They don't have the infrastructure or the healthcare system or the individual capital to, to pay for long-term care of diabetes and heart disease and cancers in their, whole, in their general population.
1: What do you think with your research and kind of our medical presence mm. in these countries? What are we doing wrong and what do you think? a potential solution to exactly what you just described is? Education?
0: Yeah, I think it's, I think that's the million dollar question. I mean, that's what I'm trying to figure out. That's what, you know, I am definitely really passionate about figuring out. And I think the United States as a developed country, like, we even have published research on it but nobody wants to hear it, you know? Like, eating and the way people eat is such an emotionally charged Mm -hmm. thing, and it's really hard sometimes, even, you know, to our educated friends to get the message across, right? Mm -hmm. They just don't want to hear it, and it's, like, it's, you know, some of the most heated, painful conversations I've had surrounding veganism, which it's like, (laughs) come on! But, um, you know, the United States has the 47th Worst healthcare in the world. Like, we're listed 47th in the world for healthcare, and everybody thinks we have the best, you know? And it's no matter what, I mean, even regardless of who our president is or what, we're still, everybody looks up to us, you know? I think that we need to lead by example. And I think, like, just saying, even if we have 47th worst in the country, in the world, everybody still thinks our healthcare is the best, right? Right. And everybody still thinks that we're doing things to the best. And I think a lot of the global knowledge, I think a lot of the massive impactful organizations that are working globally are based in the U.S. And so I think we need to like be that change and we need to start it and it needs to come. I think it also needs to come from these countries themselves because the biggest problem of, of developmental assistance or working abroad is you come in as the foreigner and tell them what to do. I mean, I don't think that's ever gonna work. We've seen years and years and years that doesn't work um, it has to come from the country, it has to come, it has to be grown from, you know, from where the change is trying to be made, um, but I think we can spread the message that, like, you already have it, you know, like, if culture and, um, is so important, like, look at how you've been eating for years, like, rice and dal. is, like, is so amazing you know they make the best <laughs> and, um, and you know you have the vegetables you have the fruit trees just dripping off it's just like let's you know especially in these countries that are have you know there's a shortage of money there's a lot of poverty people living under the poverty line you know changing the messages in terms of where you can get your source of protein or sorry your source of calories and you know, if they think, if all everybody's thinking is protein, then saying, you know, like, shifting that, right? And saying, how can we get, how can we be satiated and live a healthy life through the the food that we know, right? We're not gonna come in and tell them to eat foods that are not their food, right? It has to be a culturally, like, accepted and relevant food. Mm-hmm. But to say, you know, changing the general message on, it doesn't need, you know, it, yeah
1: yeah so if we can as the united states as kind of the world power leader in you know development and and all this if we can kind of change that mindset of how the upper class lives if you will Mm. um that we could potentially impact other countries around the world to say hey you know we have all the meat and dairy we want and we know it's not what we need to be healthy and, and live right
0: lives. and i think it, it is changing in the u.s i mean i think that um i was just in louisville kentucky very southern yeah.
1: state full of great you found a it, vegan spot or? i found a, i found <laughs> it one options? of the most
0: vegan yeah. like i found like a lot of like i was you know at a, at a <clears throat> bagel place and i'm like do you have a non-dairy cream cheese and the guy's like yeah absolutely and then i look around and they've got like you know, a vegan carrot cake, and I was in a pastry shop, and they had a couple of vegan cake options. Wow. And I think this isn't Louisville, Kentucky, yeah. which I didn't expect. You know, I yeah, expected that when I was out in Cali. You're but thinking
1: you're eating at a KFC or something. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> but I think that we are changing. I mean, if you look at the milk industry, you know, the, there's been this huge shift to these non-dairy milks, and I think that is changing. And I just think I think it's really driven by demand. I think that the industries unfortunately really run it both the animal agriculture industries and the pharmaceutical industries and I think a lot of their money gets lobbied into these big organizations Mm -hmm. and I think that that's you know a sick twisted you know system that's going on and I think that it has to be the only way to change that is the demand from the people to demand something different and put their money somewhere else, which is, I mean, that's, you know, what we spend our money on, right? We're not going to, that's the only way I feel that in an industry that's so driven by money like the United States that we're going to make, that's going to make a big change.
1: Yeah, it's definitely, we make the decision with our dollar at the end of the day. Every day. If we don't buy the steak at the restaurant and more and more people stop buying animal products when they're Mm -hmm. eating, you know, they'll stop making it, they'll adjust, they'll start selling tofu or they'll start, they'll adjust, they'll adjust to to what the people, so we, we really have the power in the, in the whole thing, regardless of how entrenched they are in the government, entrenched they are in, in big industry and all this.
0: That's what I'm saying. I mean, I think that we need to make the change. I think, you know, and from there it'll ripple out you know, it's not, I don't think it's going to come from the top up. I don't see that. I think it's really got to be this grassroots thing that's going to, that's got to shake the whole way. And I think, you know, then as it gets up to the global scale, um, these big, like, you know, that will impact abroad, but I think everyone can make, can make the change and make the difference. It's, it, which is kind of hopeful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and even when you look at stats of the impact you can have if you cut out like one serving of chicken per absolutely. week, absolutely. If everybody in the U.S. did that, like the monumental impact it would have not only on rates of disease, but also on the environment, also on uh, you know climate change and all of that.
0: Right. And I think that's you know as we talk about how you know veganism is such a charged, heated subject, mm. especially among those who are very avid or very passionate about their plant-based protein or their plant-based products I think that you know sharing this you know trying to just okay well just you know at least opening their mind a bit and and trying to reduce it right I mean I think that that's it's not an all-or-nothing thing I think that you know that to be a vegan you don't have to be 100% I mean obviously like that's the goal, right? 100% all the time. But like, to have people who are at least starting to, you know, really push these, you know, meatless Monday. But like on a bigger scale, you know, like eating just less cheese, unless it's, you know, you know, whatever. Just really yeah. trying to do bit by bit, so that they, you know, so that overall there's this global reduction, and it, it leads to a decrease in demand.
1: Yeah, like people I work with, I try to tell them, you don't need to call yourself vegan, you no. don't need to say you're plant-based, no. it, we're just slowly working on eliminating exactly. those things from your diet, um, you know, my work is health-based, it's for their health, but right. um, they're making a massive, you know, change in the world as well,
0: right. which they're
1: not aware of, right. but it's just slow change and there's a lot of stigma with the word vegan. And exactly. people don't want to um, kind of adopt this lifestyle because of that whole. Of course, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be vegan, or there's there's yeah. this whole stigma no, with it. But it's just, you know, and the people that are kind of hardcore vegan and say like get mad at people when they do have some cheese no. and things like that. It's just that's that's horrible. That's the wrong message. And yeah. Like we just want to encourage people to make gradual changes and small changes in the, in their life that. Um, are not only improving their health, but improving our, our world.
0: Right, and I think it's as simple as just, like, leading through example. I don't think there has to be this hard, like you said, I think that the yelling and the, the, you know, the shaming of people who eat or, you know, enjoy that is not, definitely not the way. But, you know, I've never felt healthier, more energy, more happy, you know, mentally, physically, like, not worrying about, you know, diet or, you know, just total weight maintenance without even trying. Mm-hmm. And I think that leading through this example and, you know, and not preaching it, but having people notice mm. in their own time is almost more powerful. And, you know, a lot of times I'll see when I go out to eat, people will be so worried. What are you going to eat at the restaurant? And they're like, <laughs> they're so worried about it. And I'm like, it's fine, you know? And then I ordered this, you know, very simple, whether it's pasta or just a rice with some salad you know, a salad with a side of rice or whatever it is, and they see themselves how easy it can be, how you can still live this very normal, quote-unquote, Western life and, you know, live to your full happiness and do everything you want, right? But do it in a different way. And I think Mm -hmm. leading through that example and, you know, showing how vibrant and healthy and happy you can be through this plant-based lifestyle um,
1: is really powerful. That was awesome. That was awesome. So, that is true. <laughs> we. I could go all day on this. Yeah,
0: I think. We <laughs> what <both> is could.
1: <laughs> what is next for you? What's um.
0: Next? Well, I'm gonna hang out in the U.S. I, I think for a bit. Um, <laughs> it's been you know like four years or so in total, probably around five. I've been outside the U.S., so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm missing my community, my friends, my family a bit, and. Um, and i'm still going to so i'm going to i just took a job with john hopkins and so i'll be doing the same sort of hiv research with key populations but it'll be based in baltimore still doing some travel but definitely um, less travel than i'm doing mm-hmm. now and and then yeah trying to flesh out a bit more how we can spread this this message abroad and you know Work towards that and just, yeah, just continue on. But, yeah, I'm being in the U.S., so I'm, I'm excited for that.
1: Cool, cool. Yeah. So I got one last question for you. Okay. You know my brand and my company mm. is called Eat Green, Make Green. Yes. I believe that by eating green, eating plant-based, eating, mm. eating vegan makes me the best version of me. Mm-hmm. Um, the Make Green portion of that is I know it's going to put me in the best position to achieve whatever I mm-hmm. want. Um, I'd like to ask you what... Why do you live this lifestyle what does what does make green mean to you why do you why do you eat green?
0: Mm. I eat green because first of all, it makes me feel like the best um, and in that I'm able to function at high like maximum capacity it's um, I feel the healthiest I feel like I look the healthiest that I've looked. I think that um I do it for the environment. I think that's green. I think that, you know, that our planet's really like screaming for help right now and needs, you know, everyone to make a change. And I, for me, this is the best way, most impactful way I believe that we can make a change in our, in our earth and our, our planet and our animals. And, you know, even down to third world countries who are making and growing livestock for us that aren't profiting off of it, you know, I mean, I think, and I think that this, on a massive scale, is the right choice, um, I think green, for me, is like sim- sim- symbolizes, like, vitality, and, you know, and regeneration, and it's something that's, like, sustainable, and, um, yeah, and I think it is, I mean, I'm able to, I think, as you said, you eating green. It's making you feel great, and you're making green because you're, you know, you're you're pushing out greenness. You're pushing out vitality, life. It's living. It's something real. Um, and yeah, and I think it has helped me in my career. I feel like more passionate and more able to follow my dreams um, because I'm healthy and happy.
1: I love it. I love it. Cool. Yeah. We're gonna we'll, wrap up. we'll okay. wrap up. that was awesome.
0: Well, thank you.
1: Wow, what an incredible conversation with Carly. I'm definitely going to have to have her back a second time because there's just so much I didn't cover. We hinted quite a bit about the environmental impact of our daily eating decisions, and a lot of you may not know the impact of that, so I'm going to put some links in the show notes of this episode on my website to resources you can check out. I did not know two years ago that Meat and dairy production is the single greatest contributor to global warming on Earth. They produce more greenhouse gases than the entire transportation industry combined. For those that are interested in adopting a plant-based lifestyle, you're in luck. That's what I do. I work with men and women all over the world to adopt this lifestyle, to heal inflammation, to get off their medications and treat their health at the source, which is with diet, and lifestyle. My program called Seven Weeks for the Rest of Your Life is designed to teach you exactly how to transition into a healthier lifestyle. And I give you all the tools, all the resources, everything you need to adopt this lifestyle and apply it to your life for years to come. For more information on my course, pop over to eatgreenmakegreen.com coaching I'll see you guys on the next episode. Have a great week.